0: Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. As you can see, we're in a new series today called Jesus B.C. Now, traditionally, when you see the BC associated with a number of years, we're talking about the phrase before Christ. And so what our series is going to be about for Advent for the weeks leading up to Christmas morning is Jesus before Christmas, Old Testament stories of Jesus before he appears at Christmas. So there's a few reasons why we want to do this. Number 1, we want to embrace the reality. It's a deep uh, theological truth for us that Jesus did not begin to exist on Christmas morning. Now it is the it is the day that we celebrate where he left heaven's glory to be born among men. But Jesus has always existed. He's the second person of the Trinity, second, not because he's second in importance, but he's revealed to us in Scripture second, right? We have God the Father uh, in Genesis 1, chapter uh, 1, verse 1. uh, Jesus is then revealed to us. He's the long-awaited Messiah. I loved the songs that we sang this morning, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, like the Old Testament points us to the Messiah. And so he's the second person of the Trinity because he's revealed to us second, but he is, Jesus is God long before Luke chapter 2. And so we're going to talk about that. We also want to appreciate the beauty of what the Old Testament points us to. As we've been unpacking the book of Acts for a number of weeks on Sunday mornings, we talked about how uh, Augustine said that the Old Testament is this, uh, is this beautifully arranged room, beautifully furnished room, Uh, that's dimly lit. There's not a lot of light in there. So if you try to walk from one end to the other end, you're going to bump into the furniture. You're going to bump into the end tables. You're not going to know where the light switches are. You're not going to know where any of that stuff is. Perhaps you can make your way around, but it's difficult until you let the light in from the New Testament. And then all of a sudden you can see where everything is. You can see the beautiful bookcases. You can see the beautiful uh, couches and where everything is. That's what the Old Testament is like. And so we want to uh, look at some scriptures in the Old Testament where Jesus shows up and will let light in from the New Testament. Also, Advent season is a season of waiting. There's five candles uh, here on the Uh, Advent wreath this morning and so as Darren mentioned every Sunday morning as we kind of prepare our hearts for worship what you'll notice is that we'll take uh, a different candle and we'll light it uh, signifying a week uh, at a time until we get to light the last candle on Christmas morning here together as a church and so today as we get started in Jesus BC we're going to be reading about Abram and the covenant Abram and the covenant so if you have your Bibles If you have your notes, let's go to Genesis chapter 15. If you have your Bibles with you, it's the first book of the Bible. You can also open the uh, Bible app and follow along there. If you go to the events page, you can find the notes there. Genesis chapter 15, we're going to read about Abram and the covenant. Now, because I know myself, I am going to say Abram and Abraham interchangeably today. Uh, And if you read through the Old Testament, there's a portion in which uh, God changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham to save you the trouble at the end of the service when I shake your hand. Yes, I'm going to call him Abraham at some point today Uh, because I'm just going to use those names interchangeably. This portion of service, uh, or the portion of scripture does happen before his name is changed. I know I'm going to screw it up, and that's why I'm just telling you right now. I'm going to call him Abraham at some point this morning. In fact, the screen already says it, so we're already there. (laughs) Every place where God manifests himself in some dramatic, audible, palpable, or physical way in the Old Testament points to the ultimate expression of God in the New Testament, who is Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, there's going to be these ways where God is revealed physically, before Jesus Christ was ever born. And so we're going to look at some of these instances. Today's passage is not well known, but it's very, very powerful. So I need you to stay with me for a few minutes as we unpack what looks like on a surface, a pretty um, unusual piece of scripture. As we get started, let me set the stage. Abram has some serious doubts about his faith. This is where we get started. Abraham has these serious doubts about his faith. Uh, Let's begin in Genesis 15, verse 1. It says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your—what's that next word? Shield, your reward shall be very great. very beginning of the verse says this, after these things, what are these things? Well, if you look back at Genesis 14, what ends up happening is Abraham has, Abram has just rescued his nephew Lot from a bunch of tribal chiefs, and he's afraid of retaliation. This is a dog-eat-dog society, more aptly perhaps a tribe-take-tribe society. And so Abram rescuing Lot from the other tribe's uh, hand, well, now is the time for retaliation. So he is fearful of the retaliation coming. And so God comes to him and right away addresses his immediate concern and says, fear not, Abram. Now, it's interesting. The phrasing of this verse is pretty, um, pretty special. It's pretty unique. It says this, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, In Old Testament scripture, that phrasing in the Hebrew language is usually reserved for a prophet. It's when the word of the Lord would come to a prophet in the Old Testament and the prophet's uh, uh, obligation was to declare those words to the rest of the people. So this is a very significant piece of uh, passage. He reminds them, I'm your shield, I'm your reward. And in verse two, Abraham interrupts him. He says, but Abraham said, Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, Abraham goes, yeah, 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 I get it. But Lord, there was a promise you made. There was a promise of a family, there was a promise of a child, and here I go, and Abram and Sarah have been wrestling with this infertility, as it were, we may not use that word, but that's what it is. They have been waiting for the promise of a child, and for years and years and years they've been waiting, and so when God says, hey, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, I'm your reward, and Abraham says, yeah, I get that, but hey, over here, you said you'd give me a family, and I still have no family. I have some doubts. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder, but I'm still scared. I still have some doubts. He says this. Uh, he, he's very pointed about where his doubts uh, remain. First of all, he says this, I have my doubts in you. Abraham is saying to God, how can I be sure about you if I still have doubts about you? You gave me this promise. You told me this was going to happen. And Lord, if I'm being honest, I have my doubts about you. I have my doubts about your word. I have my doubts about your ability to fulfill your word. I believe in you. I trust in you. You're my shield and my reward. I understand that intellectually. But in this moment, I have my doubts. Now, there are going to be times in your life where intellectually we understand who God is. Intellectually, we can wrap our minds around Jesus being our Savior. But if we're being honest, we're like Abraham, and we might have to say, Lord, I have my doubts about you because the financial situation i'm in doesn't make sense the relationships and where they are in my life don't make sense i've been waiting for this you've been promising me this but lord i still have my doubts about you so God responds in a very famous passage in verse 4. He says this, behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man shall not be your heir. Eliezer, you're talking about? No, your very own son shall be your heir. And in verse 5, he says this, he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. And if you're able to number them, then he said this, so shall your offspring be. God gives him his, this assurance. He, uh, he fills his doubts with these uh, assurances. And yet he still doesn't know if he can believe God. Yet the very next verse is powerful. It says this, and he believed the Lord and he counted to him for or as righteousness. It's a beautiful promise. It's a beautiful statement. Uh, in the New Testament, Paul would reminisce about these same words. Uh, let's go to Romans 12 for just a few moments. Romans chapter 12 in verse or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 4 in verse 1 says this. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. The scripture tells us Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned, but people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. This is a beautiful, beautiful point we should wrap our minds around. In the very moment where uh, Abraham has these doubts, where he says, I have doubts about you, the very next verse says he believed God. The, the journey from doubt and belief or doubt and unbelief to belief is probably much shorter than we think it is. He says he believed God, and so all of a sudden, everything that was counted to him before all the doubts, everything that was against him, are now counted to him as righteous. In this very moment where Abraham has these doubts about who God is, he's able to believe God, he's able to be counted as righteous. We read on in verse seven. God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of, from Ur. Everyone say Ur. If I have to read these words, so should you. Uh, I brought you out of, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So God assures him. He reminds him of who he is. Look at Abraham's response in verse 8. But he said this, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How will I know? What's interesting is that it sounds like Abraham is coming to him and he's got these doubts and about who he is, but now he's saying, yeah, but how will I know? Uh, Lord, if you could just, um, if, I, if you could share your screen with mine so I can see what you're looking at, that would be very helpful. If, if I could just, um, this plan that you have, Like, the how is really messing me up, Lord. So if you could just, in fact, why don't you email me the minutes of what's about to happen just so I could be ready, just so I could be on the same page. It doesn't make any sense. Lord, Sarah and I have been waiting. We've been waiting. You said you'd give us a child. We don't have a child. We're going to be left here without. And how is this going to look on you, God? God. How's it going to look on you if I remain childless till I'm old and, and, and beyond the age of being able to, repre- like, Lord, how am I to know? God says, uh, "The Lord is my shepherd." I'm sorry. Psalms 23 says, "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want." It's a beautiful promise, isn't it? And you know what we do? Say, "Lord, how shall I not want?" I want right now I lack these things now. How, how will I know that I'm to possess it? In other words, uh, Abraham's this weird spot where not only does he have doubts about uh, who who God is, he has doubts about uh, himself. He has doubts in God, but he also has doubts in himself. I have my doubts about you. I have my doubts about me. How am I supposed to attain this? How is this going to happen? How can I be sure that you'll do this? But also, how can I be sure that I'm to possess this? Abraham has these doubts. It's a beautiful couple of things about doubts. Number one, God has patience with doubters. God is very patient with doubters. God shows up and he says, I am the Lord. I am your shield. I am your reward. And Abraham says, I got my doubts about you, Lord. And if I'm being honest, I got my doubts about me too. It's a beautiful reminder that God is patient with doubters. I mean, um, at some point, you would just expect God in His conversation with Abraham to say, "How dare you question my ways? How dare you question who I am?" And He doesn't. He Answers his fears. He gets in the mud with Abraham with his doubts. He relieves him of his doubts. He answers them. He gets more doubts from Abraham and he answers, though. In fact, God does not let people stay in their doubts. If you're here today or you're watching online or maybe you're listening to this later and you have your doubts about who Jesus is or maybe your doubts about how you could ever earn God's graces and where this all fits in your life, let me encourage you this morning. Not only is he patient with doubters, he doesn't let people stay in their doubts. He just doesn't say to Abraham, well, you know what? You're human, and you're just going to have to uh, live in your doubts. I think in the New Testament, John chapter 20 is a beautiful example. Here's Thomas, one of the disciples, and we know Thomas's nickname, Doubting Thomas. What a horrible nickname, by the way. When he was told that Jesus is risen, he says, I don't know i don't know about that jesus shows up and he says here thomas come to me touch me see me allow what you see alleviate what you doubt And there's this perfect balance on the one hand, because Jesus does not come into our lives, and he says, how dare you doubt me? How dare you doubt me? If you trust me for salvation, don't you trust me for your Monday and your Tuesday? If you trust me with eternity, why can't you just trust me with this next week? If you trust me with eternal salvation, why can't you trust me that your relationships will be in order? Uh, He comes to Abraham, and he sits with them in the doubts. In fact, the way he answers his doubts is today's message. Look at verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each of them, each half over against the other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This has got to be the weirdest shopping list ever, right? You Imagine you you go to leave for the grocery store and your spouse says a heifer, a female goat, uh, a ram, make sure they're all three years old, a turtle dove and a pigeon, and we should be good. It's going to be a great Thanksgiving dinner. It reads more like a shopping list for a strange pagan ceremony than maybe something the Lord would ask of. Everything is cut in half. The small ones except aren't. The birds, he arranges them opposite of each other. And if you're visually picturing, uh, yeah, if if you make a mental image of what's happening, he brings these animals, he cuts them in half, he lays them on one side against another. He's basically forming this aisle, an aisle in which you could walk down perhaps. Now, it's pretty obvious that God said, bring me these animals, and Abram knew exactly what he was talking about. If you read these three verses again, Abram, uh, God gives Abram a shopping list, Abram gives, gets the uh, animals, and he immediately starts cutting them in half. Uh, did God ask him to cut those in half? No, there was obviously something familiar about these animals. There was something familiar in God's request for these animals, and so Abram goes ahead and carries out what is to happen next. Abram knows what God is calling him to do, and you and I don't, so we're going to unpack this. What exactly is happening here? Next in your outline, if you're following along, God answers Abram's doubts by entering into a covenant. They're entering into this covenant. Now, this word covenant is isn't an isn't agreement. It's a contract. Now, here's the thing. If you and I were to make a contract, if you and I were to make an agreement on something, uh, how would we formalize that agreement? Well, if we were friends, perhaps just an understanding between two parties would be enough. But if I was entering into a legal contract with someone, a business contract with someone... Uh, we would sign our names to something, wouldn't we? You go to the bank and you get a covenant for a, a loan. And they say, this is the amount of money we're going to give you. This is the amount of interest we're going to charge you. We promise to provide the money to you and, and, to, and to give you this amount of interest and to wait for your payments until it's paid back. You promise to take the money, use it for what you're intended to use it for, and you also have to make the payments, right? We have a written society. Well, how do you do that in a society that's not a written society? This is a vocal society or an oral society. So in that day and age, when you wanted to come into an agreement with someone, you had to act out the contract. Now, stay with me. You had to uh, dramatize the contract. So what's happening here is the drama, the acting out would be the chance to uh, act out the consequences of not obeying the contract. So breaking your covenant, breaking your vows would have certain consequences. So you would do something to dramatize the covenant, the contract and the consequences to make sure that everyone's on the same page. Now, to shed some light on this in Genesis 15, we're going to go forward in the Old Testament just a little bit to Jeremiah 34. So, Jeremiah 34, uh, the verses will be on the screen. Look at what ends up happening. The man who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they look at it, cut in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. Look at verse 20. I will put them in the the hand of their enemies and in the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. It's pretty graphic detail. But basically what this Old Testament covenant looked like was this. You would cut animals in half you would put them on either side of an aisle, and you would walk between the pieces. The person you were making the covenant with would also, depending on the circumstances, and basically what you're saying is this. You said, if I do not do everything in the future that I'm about to do, I break my covenant. And if I break my covenant, by me walking down this aisle of carcasses that have been cut in two, I am showing to you that that I am taking this seriously and if I don't fulfill my covenant, may I be cut in half as these animals have been cut in half. You're identifying with the pieces and you're saying, this is what I want to happen to me if I break this covenant. Now, the symbolism is pretty easy to get. Um, First of all, the stakes were super high. It's a very serious covenant because it's sealed with blood. But second, what you're saying is, if I break this covenant, let this same bloodshed that happened to these animals be also on me. Now, here's the thing. Imagine the next time you hire a contractor. uh, How about, no, let's do this, the cable guy. The next time you have your internet provider or your cable guy out promise to come between 8 and noon, and they want your credit card over the phone to formalize the agreement... And you say, no, no, I got a better idea. I have four or five animals. I'm going to split them in two, right? And you send your guy over and we're both going to walk this aisle and I'm going to promise to be here from eight to noon and pay you your services. And then your guy is going to promise to be here between eight and noon. I'm just saying you'd probably get better service. (laughs) You would probably get a higher standard of commitment on that agreement, wouldn't you say? So there's this covenant. Um, stay with me for just a little bit longer. When you had non-equals enter into a covenant, and this is where the the symbolism really uh, heightens for us today. When you had non-equals, a king entering a relationship with lesser kings. So if you had a a nation that took over two or three smaller nations, what would end up happening is they would do this very similar uh, covenant. And instead of both the king of the larger nation and the two or three other nations, uh, instead of all the parties walking down the aisle, who would walk down the aisle? Just the lesser kings. Because they were being accountable to the greater king. Does that make sense? So whenever there was a situation where you didn't have equal parties, uh, but a larger king who was Uh, taking over smaller nations, and instead of uh, removing everyone that lived there or, or pillaging the nation, instead, maybe there was an agreement that these lesser countries would pay a tribute or a tax to the greater king, and in exchange, he would not kill them, which is a pretty good deal. They would go and do this covenant, and they would split the animals, and instead of the larger king walking down the aisle, it would only be the two or three smaller kings who would walk down, because it was their neck on the line, because they were subservient to the larger king. Here's Abraham and God and God says gather these animals and when he hears which animals Abraham already knows what's about to happen. When he gets the shopping list from God, he already knows what's going to happen. He says, "Uh-oh. We're entering into a covenant." He gathers the animals. He already starts to uh cut them in half. He places them on either aisle, even though he's not instructed to because he knows what's coming next. He knows they're about to enter into this covenant. He is preparing himself to have to walk that aisle because just like the lesser kings would need to walk down before the greater king, here he is and he's ready to walk down the aisle to enter into the covenant with God Almighty. Lord, I don't know if I can trust you, Lord, I don't know if I can even trust myself. Like, how are you going to give me this, uh, this, this offspring you've promised? And how am I supposed to possess the land? And God says, let me answer your doubts. Here's your list. And now Abram knows he has to enter into this covenant. As he's preparing the items, he knows he has to walk down the aisle next. But that's not what happened. Look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon them. Now, this isn't a normal sleep because it says a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. It literally means a a darkness of terror fell on him. uh, Kind of a spiritual darkness, perhaps, that fell on him along with the physical darkness. Because it was so dreadful and the sun was being uh, eliminated in that moment. Genesis 15 and verse 17, we read on, When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, these words are kind of hard to translate for most historians. And what they believe is that these two words that appear when God descends on the Mount Sinai, which means these are tokens that are emblems of God's immediate presence. This is God showing up physically for Abraham. But here's here's what's so weird is that the second word blazing here, that torch, is a word that's often used for lightning. And what this means is something like this. Abram watched a searing strike of lightning appear and hold its shape so that you and I only, like we've only ever seen lightning in a moment Abraham saw it hold its shape in between the aisle and the radiance of his, the image, the smoke, imagine the sparks, everything holding its shape as it passes through the pieces, as it passes through the aisles God had or Abraham had prepared. Abram knew in this moment, it wasn't just a simply reiterating of the older vows in Genesis 12. This wasn't just a reminder of something old. He was making a new covenant. God himself was putting his physical presence in between this aisle. He was walking between the pieces. He was identifying with those pieces. Now, here's why that's astounding. God is saying this. God's going between the pieces, and he's saying this. Abraham, if I don't bless you, may my immortality become mortality. May I die. May I be cut off. God was identifying with these pieces that had been split apart. And he's basically telling Abraham, I know you have your doubts about me, but my presence here in this moment signifies this. That if I don't come through, if I'm not who I say I am, if I am not God, then let me be cut off. Now, here's an equally amazing thing. You know who doesn't walk the aisle? Abram never does. Now, don't miss the significance here. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. God says this, I'm willing to come down, I'm willing to show up physically and manifest myself as a assurance of the doubts you have. Abraham said in the first verse, man, I don't know about you, God. I don't know about you. Intellectually, I know who you are, but I'm in this position where I have my doubts about who you are. And God says, go ahead, grab all the elements. I'm going to enter into this covenant for you. And just like you have done with other people in your life, God says this, I'm going to walk the aisle. I'm going to put my physical presence between the aisle so that if push comes to shove and my my, uh, my deity is questioned. If I'm not God, if I'm not who I say, if I don't bless you in the ways that I have showed that I would bless you, I will be cut off. But he never, ever, ever asks Abram to walk the aisle. It's Abraham, and you know, he doesn't have to walk the aisle. It means this, I will bless you, I will, sh- I will live up to my end of the bargain. I know that you have your doubts about me, but what he's also saying is this. If I'm not faithful to the covenant, I will pay the penalty, even if you're not faithful to the covenant, because your faithfulness has nothing to do with this blessing. This blessing comes to you unconditionally. Now think about it. If it was the greater king and he was taking over lesser nations, it would be preposterous for the greater king to walk down the aisle. It would be preposterous for him to prepare the elements. It would only be the lesser kings to do so because they had a covenant to fulfill to the greater king, and they would have been shocked. They would have been, uh, they would have been so confused. They would have been in utter disbelief if the greater king would ever walk down the aisle to enter into a covenant because it was not on him to do so. And yet in this moment, God comes down, and in the physical presence of his lightning, and in the, the fire that's representative of his holy Shekinah glory, his presence, he comes down in between the aisle and he never asks Abraham to do so. Abraham says, I have my doubts about you, I have my doubts about me, and this is how God answers. He comes in this unconditional grace covenant and this says, You can be absolutely sure that this is going to happen. My word is sure, and you can absolutely be sure that this grace will come to you unconditionally. Now, are you ready for the light of the New Testament to come in on Genesis 15? Let's go to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, we're seeing the story of where Jesus shows up in the Old Testament long before Christmas I want to remind you, I want to take you to Mark chapter 15, and as soon as we read these verses, I think you'll know where we are. Uh, In fact, why don't we uh, read this together, Mark chapter 15 and verse 33, ready, begin. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. We know where Jesus is, right? He's on the cross. Isaiah 53 would say it this way, that the suffering servant would be cut off from the land. God would be cut off. He died. Jesus would experience death. He would experience all this so that he could bless you even when you fail him, so that your salvation could be an unconditional salvation. Such was the final cost of God's astounding oath of grace that night. Galatians in the New Testament says it this way in Galatians chapter three, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of who? Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Why is it such a big deal that the promise of uh, the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles? First of all, if we're identifying characters in Genesis 14, we are the Gentiles. We are the outsiders. So in Christ Jesus the blessing of abraham is just we was just what we saw in genesis 15 genesis 12 the promise that through abraham's seed there would be this nation uh that abraham would be the father of the fact that abraham believed god and it was counted unto him as righteousness uh that in the midst of abraham's doubt he was able to still believe god and to assure abram of his doubts to assure him of his his doubts where abraham says man i have doubts about you lord And if I'm being honest, I have doubts about me. And so God comes down. He enters into this covenant with Abraham. And in the New Testament, we see the light come in on this story. And we see that this covenant that God entered into with Abraham fully recognized that God would take the entire obligation of the covenant. He would never ask Abraham to walk down the aisle because there was nothing abram could do to earn god's favor in this covenant there was nothing he could do to actually uh prove his worthiness there was nothing he could do to dissuade the doubts on his own he had to trust in god's ability to carry out the covenant on his own and in the new testament we see this in christ jesus the blessing of abraham would come to the gentiles you and i verse 14 so uh so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith There's no other religion on the face of the earth like our faith. Because here's the thing, all other religions are basically saying the same thing. Everyone ought to love one another, and God will bless you if you do. But this is not what the gospel shares. Religions either have an impersonal God who can never do anything like what we see happening here in Genesis 15 because he's just a force. He could never be personal like this. Or they have a God who can never become a human being because they would never leave the glories of their deity. Their religions would never have a God who would suffer and die. He would never go through the things that we see happen in the Gospels with Jesus Christ. How in the world would God, the Almighty King, walk the aisle when he didn't have to? Why would he do that? He would do that because of his love for us. And in our, fa- and in our faith, there will be moments where we have either doubts about who Jesus is or doubts about ourselves. And if we're being honest, sometimes it's our doubts about who Jesus is. And we'll ask ourselves the hard question like, God, why aren't you here? Why aren't you showing up in my life? I have my doubts about you. I fully appreciate that you showed up for Abraham. I fully appreciate that you showed up from Thomas. But Lord, if I'm being honest, I need you to show up for me right now. I have my doubts about you. I have my doubts about your love. I have my doubts about your ability to hear my prayers. Or maybe you're in this position where maybe it's not so much the doubts about who jesus is but you have your doubts about yourself and you say man i understand that you are loving that you're caring that you're compassionate but lord i have my doubts in my ability to live up to my end of the agreement and so in these moments where we have these questions that uh, reside in our heart um, i would say this as your pastor I don't believe that it's questioning your faith. What I do believe is, is you're searching for the foundation of your faith. And there's a big difference. Look at Hebrews chapter six. It says this, we have this as our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It says this in verse 19, we have this as our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Church, there's no place, no greater place to anchor your soul than in the one who created it when the earth is passing away, when it's crumbling, there's no better place for us to put our faith in our anch- than the anchor uh, of our soul. If what he has done is so precious to you, well, this is the thing, his reward, nothing. Let me say that again. If what he has done is so precious to you that he is the ultimate prize in your life, then his presence is the great reward in your life maybe you're here and you're saying, man, I don't even know if I'm a Christian, then you need to find out how to make this covenant yourself. This is the gospel message that as as sinners far removed from God's presence and his grace, we could never enter into a covenant based on our own good graces. And so if you are here today and you don't know how to uh, reconcile the fact that you're not a Christian, that you don't have this faith within you, uh, my question to you this today is then, do you want to be responsible for this covenant on your own? Do you want to walk down this aisle? Do you want to take part of this covenant that basically says, regardless of your doubts in God, regardless of your doubts in yourself, if you don't measure up to this covenant, you reap the consequences of failing to do so. If you say, well, I'm in this relationship with Christ, but I don't have this insurance, I don't have this assurance, uh, I'm doubting like Tom, or I'm, I'm questioning it like Abram, uh, let me point you to Romans chapter 8. It says this, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If you go and say man i 'm a child of God, but I need more assurance I need more assurance in my life I want more of a sense of your his presence I want to know him more I want the incredible confidence and boldness I see in other people or I see in people of Uh, in the scriptures, then what I ask you to do is if you go to God with a sincere heart, he will not ignore you. Just like he did with Abraham, just like he did with Thomas. He never takes someone who's questioning or sincerely pursuing God and he never says, how dare you? He never comes at you with a heart full of anger and says, how can you question me? How, would you look around? Would you look at nature? Would you look at all the ways that confirms my existence? He never comes to you at a position of anger or, or, or resentfulness or a position where he's going to ignore you. He's going to come to you and he's going to sit with you in the middle of your doubts. To what extent will he not ignore you? Well, to the extent that he would leave the glories of heaven. To the extent that he would be born to live a sinless, perfect life, to walk among us, to be 100% man and 100% God, to what extent will he not ignore you? To experience every emotion, every high, every low, and every temptation. And Hebrews tells us, yet without sin, he would walk to the cross, he would bear your sin, and he would bear my sin upon the cross. Here's the thing. You cannot have Christmas without the cross because it just doesn't make sense. To have Christmas without the cross is an incomplete story. It's like getting the previews of a movie and never really understanding why or where it ends. It is the incomplete version of Christmas. To be the long-expected Messiah and yet to never get to the cross would be, take, would be uh, to take the glories of Christmas and never to understand the reason we celebrate in the first place. The birth of our Savior is him coming down from the heavens, the glories of heavens, so that he could die on the cross so that we might have lift life. That we might have lift doesn't make sense. It's so that we could have life. Here's the thing if we are going to celebrate Christmas, we must do so in view of the cross. Because otherwise, we're lighting candles for no reason. We're singing songs about a Messiah where the words don't even make sense. And we're going to reduce the next few weeks to exchanging gifts with one another. Here's the thing I like gifts. I look forward to them a lot should write that down just kidding i like gifts and i like the i like what we get to do around christmas and i think we all do but coming to church and worshiping is this opportunity where we get to say okay why here's abram and he has these doubts about who god is and i can tell you as your pastor Uh, the next few weeks, I will probably have more conversations with people who are asking the question, why? Who are asking the question, how come? Who are asking the question, if God loves me, comma, then, and fill in the blank. Because the glories of Christmas, if we don't see them in view of the cross, they pale in comparison to the real life struggles we have every single day and so here's abram and he has his doubts about who god is so i have my doubts about who you are i know you said you'd give me this family i know you said you'd give me offspring and we like we talked about a couple of weeks ago we have the privilege of seeing the end of the story and we are we're rooting for abraham and we're saying just wait a few more chapters man there's going to be this awesome occasion where you have isaac and then a few chapters later, we're going to see this awesome occasion where you think you're going to have to let go of Isaac, but God comes through and he provides this lamb, which is so cool because in the New Testament, he says, I'm the lamb and Passover, Abraham, just stay with us. It's going to be great. And yet In the moment, we can, we can identify with him and say, yeah, there's these moments where I say, I have my doubts about you, God. How would you let this happen? I have my doubts about you. Why won't you answer this prayer? I have my doubts about who you are. And I think if we're being honest, we also can say, man, I have my doubts about myself. I I fully embrace God that you died on a cross to save us. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why me. Because I have my doubts about me. I have my doubts to be able to live up to the name Christian. I have my doubts to be able to be a follower of Jesus Christ like you've asked me to do. I have my doubts about you, but I also have them about me. So if we're being honest, Lord, it's just easier if I just coast through. But I have my doubts. God enters into this awesome covenant, and the beauty of the covenant is this. It's the beauty of the cross. It is the weight of our sin... That put Jesus on the cross, but there's nothing we could do to earn our salvation. It is the glory of Christmas because we get to view it with the perspective of the cross. Let me pray for you this morning as we reflect and we respond. Father, as we consider this Old Testament narrative that on the surface is very, very unusual and it's very, very confusing, Father, I ask that you would give us hearts to hear. In a way that actually uh, moves our faith, Father. Um, for those of us experiencing doubts about who you are, or doubts about ourselves in relationship to who you are, Father, I pray that you would um, that you would show yourself strong and mighty in our behalf. That you would remind us of your presence. In our life. Father, I pray that you would remind us of why you came to be born under such humble, humble circumstances. I pray that we would always view Christmas with the perspective of the cross, so we'd always be reminded of what Christmas is about for us. Thank you for sitting with us in our doubts. Thank you for resting with us in those moments where we have doubts, Lord. And I pray that we would just embrace your presence and who you are in our life. Now, for all of us, that means different things. So whatever stage of faith that we're at, I pray that you would help us move and grow. For some of us who've been Followers of Jesus Christ, for many, many years, that just means that we, at this point, need to read the Gospels afresh. We need to consider them brand new. We need to embrace the the beauty of the truth of the Gospels all over again. For some of us, that means we're still taking baby steps. We're brand new Christians. We're trying to figure out what this means. And so that means in our doubts and in our fears, we get to choose to listen to the voice of a Savior. And against the voices of doubt or shame or guilt or fear, we get to draw near to the heart of God and hear his voice in our life. Father, I pray for those watching online or listening later in the week or maybe those in this room who have never um, come to a point where they've settled their faith. They've never put their faith and trust in you. They've never been baptized perhaps to identify with you and your followers, I pray that you would encourage them and give them, a, um, yeah, give them boldness to reach out to the person they're sitting with, to reach out to me or someone in their circle of faith that they can trust where they can simply declare, I believe and I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, We would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you, and have a beautiful day.